Welcome to episode 248 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. You know, I've been thinking more and more about the future of our industry. Theatres have been closed for like four months now as I record this, and there doesn't look like there's any sign of them opening back up. Now, in places that have entered stage three of the emergency measures, some of the movie theaters have reopened, but the distancing required to allow that means that the audiences are smaller and more spread out, making a theater that normally holds hundreds reduce their audience to 50. And that's for a movie theater. It really isn't financially feasible to do this in the live theater, where we not only have the cost of the box office in front of house, but we have our on-stage talent, and we have the backstage crew, and we have stage management, and all of the other things that go into running a live production. Even though some of the theater companies suggested early on in the pandemic that they would plan to reopen in January, as we go forward... It really seems likely that that won't happen and that we won't see the reopening of theaters until much later and maybe not until next summer at the latest. Which means that if if creators are going to keep creating, we will be grappling with live streaming video for a while longer. Which means that we are going to have to innovate and find new ways to use the platforms that are widely being used and push them to and past their limits. We're going to have to be ready to experiment with new platforms. We have to get away from the Brady Bunch grid of platforms like Zoom. Because we need to find ways to make the video we're presenting more dynamic. So many people, myself included, spend many hours of each day in video conferences. And when we present our plays in the same format with the grid of all of the people, it can be difficult for an audience to separate that format from what they spend so much time doing at work, which can make our presentations less appealing. So we need to experiment with with new models and new formats and, and make our live streaming feel more theatrical. But even more important for the future of the industry, at least for the near future of the next few months, we have to realistically start thinking about monetizing our live streams. For the past few months, we have been giving away our productions or offering them in a pay-what-you-can model. And I, I wonder if that has been a bad precedent. At the beginning, it felt necessary. People needed entertainment, and it seemed right for us to give it to them. There was so much uncertainty and fear in the world that anything we could do might be a help. But now, that's become the norm and it is not sustainable. While we aren't having to rent performance spaces, we have had other expenses in navigating video. Some of us have upgraded our computers or bought new webcams, new software, taken courses, and we've had to learn completely new technologies and skills. So it's not like we don't have expenses. We just have different expenses, but they're expenses all the same. We can't keep giving away our art and expect to survive. We need to find ways to find a balance between presenting our art and making a living. I think we can do both. And if this situation goes long as I think it might, we are going to need to. I'm just I'm just one guy and that's my opinion. I'm curious what you think. If you disagree, let me know. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And you can find the website with the archive of all 248 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Spencer Streichert. Spencer is a multidisciplinary artist specializing in comedy, stunt performing, theater, film, you name it. And he is based in Calgary, Alberta. One of the downsides to Canadian media and Canadian theater is that we don't get to speak to each other and we don't get interviewed very often. And so there's a lot of a lot of nerves involved in that. 
Well, and I, I noticed cause like I, like I do stand up as well and I do a ton of podcasts to promote stand up a lot of the time. So when I get opportunities to, you know, talk about theater, it's, it, it does feel a lot more natural. It's not as yeah. scary. Uh, I know a lot there, of, my I'm friends... sure there isn't there when you're doing a, a comedy podcast, there's the pressure to uh, quote unquote perform and be funny. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely a little bit of that pressure, but I think it depends on what the podcast is too. And, and it also depends, like I've done inside jokes, uh, which is like a, a radio show in Toronto. I've done that a couple of times and it's very conversational and, and it's, it's more of a round table discussion about things than it is like having to try and be funny. Uh, so it, it does kind of help because it, it just makes you relax. I think a little bit more when you're, yeah. you're not having that pressure. And I think it makes it funnier too, if you're not so invested in in that one goal throughout the whole thing right uh it, it just yeah it feels the same as being in a scene with somebody and then uh, if if you're hyper focusing on one detail it's not going to come across then <laughs> i cannot imagine the pressure of going on a quote-unquote comedy podcast where you the there's sort of like the all right you're promoting your comedy show make me laugh because if there's one thing that isn't funny it's when somebody is like, make me laugh. Oh, entirely. And and you can never be funny. And and it's that like immediate pressure on the spot that just does not work at all. Because like I myself, like I'm very I need to prepare before I go on stage for sure. Like I, I'm not somebody who can go up and just kind of wing it. Like I have to write out my material and like have that down packed and know exactly what I'm gonna say. So to try and be funny in the moment always just comes across as the most disingenuous thing that I can do. Uh, so if I'm having a conversation and something ends up being funny, it works out a lot better because I'm, I'm more of a writing comic than a, mm -hmm. you know, in the moment kind of comic. Do you know the podcast? Good one. No, I don't actually. It's a, it's a, a podcast where the host uh, sits down with a comedian. They play, one of their jokes and then they discuss the joke, how it's written. It's like a deep dive into uh, the telling of a joke, the evolution of the joke and the writing of a joke. It's, it's quite fascinating. Ooh, that would be really fun. Cause there's a lot of, there's a, it'd be fun to hear how people get to that stage. Cause I, I think it's a hundred percent different for everyone. Like to mm -hmm. where you get to where like it's a polished thing. Um, there's been jokes that I've done the first time and, and I haven't changed it after that. Like I've, I've tried things and it hasn't exactly worked. And then, you know, uh, went back to the way it was originally, but then there's also jokes where you end up just tweaking it over the course of like a year. And, and it's those small steps along the way. And, and, uh, also like just specific phrasing with things sometimes doesn't work out and it just comes across as, chunky so it'd be cool to see how other people get to that point because i know for myself i'm like i i gotta keep listening to what i what i what my last set was and see how i can improve on that like i record every set that i do just so that i yeah. have that you know whiteboard to go to to kind of circle back and change the game plan a bit but yeah there's also the uh, the documentary tig about tig notaro which was like following up after after uh, her 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 cancer and the, her famous bit at at Bumbershoot, um, and it actually follow one of the things it does is it follows a joke, like from the first time she tells it until she perfects it because she's one of those works on stage, she writes on stage sort of people, mm -hmm. um, so it's fascinating to see the first time and then she'll tell it, you see it a bunch of times and see how the joke evolves. But you're a you're a write it down kind of kind of comedian. Yeah, I'm definitely a, like, I'll write it down. And then I, I, so I, I have like three steps to it. I write it down and I'll, I'll keep rewriting something for like months at a time before I even try it on stage sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's like the day of I'll, I'll write it out, but I'll write it a few different ways. And then I try it on stage a few different ways that I've written it. And I listen to those recordings and then I go back and I rewrite it. And then usually it's like the fourth or fifth time that I do that cycle that I, I have a joke where I'm I'm happy with it and I'm getting laughs every, you know, 10 seconds, hopefully. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, if it's a longer joke, you you do have that uh, a little bit of a leeway where you can have 
the laugh like a little bit further away from 10 seconds, but like it's got to be big at that point then. So it's all about the build with it. And I think when, when it comes to crafting a joke like that, it, it, Mm -hmm. uh, it definitely takes more time, but I think that I'm, I'm more confident as a writer because of it. So which came first for you, theater or stand up? Uh, theater technically came first because like, so I, I, I was born in Nelson and my mom, uh, she was an actor in the eighties. Uh, and she had went to like the, uh, American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles. Um, and then she, you know, did plays in Sydney, in uh, Sydney, Australia. And she did a few like weird little gigs. Uh, she was in the movie Roxanne, uh, for like two seconds. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she got like she had a scene where she was in it with like Steve Martin, and it's super weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but so when I was young, like I started to get into like the idea of like filmmaking and acting, and I was you know doing school plays and everything as a kid. Um, and then we moved around a bit uh, when I was younger, and then when I was eleven, we settled in East End, Saskatchewan, which is a really small town. It's like five hundred people. Uh, it's just north of the Montana border. Um, and so there wasn't really a lot of opportunity for theater there. Um, so I I was rodeoing when I was a kid. Like I, I ended up getting pretty good at that. I ended up at the uh, Canadian Cowboys Association finals when I was 16. Um, so I, I had this like weird kind of shift of focus, but I was still doing like community theater like there was like one play that would happen a year and there'd be like one school play that would happen a year. And I would, I would, as I was getting older, I was more hesitant to do it. And I think it was because I was really enjoying it and I was afraid of, you know, not having everything else that I was doing in my life. Um, So then when I was uh, 16, I got on a film as a stunt observer because I had the rodeo background and I knew you know, a little bit about film and stuff. And I was a persistent kid that just emailed Actra almost daily in grade 11 uh, to see how I could get into that. And so I, I ended up getting on this film and, and I was a stunt observer on that. And then I didn't really touch theater or comedy for a while. Like I, I, I didn't start doing stand up until I was 19. Um, and I had been doing film, but I was, I was trying to focus on stunt work. And then I just kind of kept going into acting like acting kept falling back into my life and I would I would be you know brought on to be a stunt coordinator or or a stunt performer in someone's short film and then they'd be like hey you can act so why don't you say these three or four lines so I I slowly started to get into that more and then when I was 19 I was like okay well if I'm if I'm gonna commit to acting I should also you know just get more confident as a performer and so I didn't want to pay for acting classes at the time. So I figured I would do stand up because at least then it might not be acting, but at least I was going to get comfortable being in front of people and, and, you know, not have that, that jitter and especially something that was totally new and alien to me. So I started doing stand up, and then a year and a half later, I ended up going to university at the university of Calgary and, and was taking drama classes there. And that was when that was when I really got that bug to to pursue theater more. Because um, my first year at university, I ended up in all three of the main stages uh, at the university that year, and I was a lead in two of them. So I was like, okay, maybe I should focus on this a little bit more and and really hone in on the craft. So it was it was kind of a bit of like theater definitely came first, but comedy like professionally came before theater professionally, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, what did stand up teach you about theater? So even before you got to theater school, what did you take from, from stand up that carried you through into theater? I think it's the biggest thing was feeling an audience's energy and, and just like adjusting whatever you were doing to kind of work with that, which not necessarily you you do that in in every play that you're doing but i i think you you do find ways as a run of a show goes on that like there's different things that that work with different audiences right and then that mm-hmm. helps you discover moments i think a little bit easier because you're 
you're then not just playing off of your own energy and your scene partner's energy, but then there's that element of the audience's energy, which is then bringing you a little bit more grounded, I guess. Um, and, and that might not be for everyone, right? Like I know a lot of people that don't like to, uh, look at the audience at all, or like have that, you know, they have that still feeling of nerves in front of an audience. But I think for, for myself, I need that, that, uh, energy of, of, a crowd like it just it it helps me really stay invested in whatever I'm doing and I and I don't know why it's like that with theater and I can like I have no trouble dropping into those moments with film but with theater it, it feels like it, when that when that element is missing like performing in front of an empty house is like the worst feeling if you're doing stand-up or theater because mm-hmm. you just don't have that that thing pushing you that that power pushing you yeah, the the idea of of sort of sensing an audience, I think, is something that in some theater schools they'd be like, "Oh, we would never tell you to do that. Don't do that." Um, but there's also the element of the fact that, like, if you're in a long run, if you're doing a comedy and you can't feel the audience, like the jokes are going to die. Oh yeah, no, and and that was something last year. I was really lucky. I got to do Shakespeare by the Bow here in Calgary. Um, which is an emerging artist program that Theatre Calgary puts on. And so you get to do like a whole run in, in the summer. And it's for sure the longest run of any show that goes on in Calgary professionally. Like, like it, it goes from the end of June until the end of August. So you have, you know, eight weeks of performing. And what I noticed, it was really funny. Like there was small things that I was just tweaking throughout the entire run. And by the end of the summer, every single line that I was saying was getting this huge laugh. And it wasn't like I was doing stuff to upstage anyone. It was just tweaking little things in my own like performance that just made me like feel that energy a little bit more. And, and I don't know, it was, it was a really interesting thing. Cause I had never, I had never approached theater the same way I had approached stand up up until that mm. point. Like I never had that thought of, okay, well, what if I try it just ever so slightly different tonight? That's going to like, I was so afraid, I think up until that point to do that because most of the runs that I had done were much shorter. So, you know, and I think the problem with a short run is you have that fear of, of experimenting within what is going on, you know, in, in the moment, because you only have so many performances to, to do it. And you, you don't want to, like you don't want to botch a situation, right? <laughs> yeah, there's also a risk in in a in a show. Like I did a show many years ago, and one of the actors, um, he did everything exactly the same every night. And at first, you're like, "Wow, he's really consistent." And then after about five performances, you were like, "He's not even paying attention." Yeah, and and he that's will something- he will say that line the same way no matter what anybody else does and that isn't theater theater is an in the moment thing and it shouldn't be like turning on a tape recorder totally and and i think that it's it's really about finding that moment each time right like re like reliving it for the first time and if if you're going into robot mode you don't have that you 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 don't have any room to do that like you don't have that uh, you know, freedom to just, all right, well, this actor did it differently tonight. I got to adjust to that. Like you, you, I think that when you do that, it, it, it helps everyone because if you're so worried about saying it the right way and keeping consistent, it does work if, you know, it, like consistency, the way that I've always looked at it, like consistency is good with choreography and with blocking. But as far as where like how you say things if 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 it doesn't feel right because of what somebody just you know handed you for their line you have to adjust yourself to to make it feel right you know yeah i definitely i definitely agree with that because you know if if you're just if if you have a bunch of people on stage who are doing it exactly the same way they're just pressing play on their tape recorder that's super boring for an audience to watch cuz nobody's actually talking to each other mm-hmm. nobody's actually listening to each other or talking to each other it's just a bunch of people on stage sort of talking at each other and that's super dull but if you get the sense 
if it seems like anything could happen, then suddenly an audience will, you people will sit up in their chair and they'll lean forward. And it's, it's, you know, if it doesn't feel like it's like, I've said this line a million times before, then people will pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think that that's, I, I, I might be wrong in this, but I find that that happens a lot more with classical theater than it does with uh, contemporary theater, where people are worried about, like, they're really worried about keeping with, you know, the iambic and, and verse and everything. And mm. and I've noticed that that's when I, I see a lot of people dropping out of that spontaneity. And I don't know if maybe that's just something that, like, people are worried about because of like theater school or it might not even be something they're doing consciously. Right. Um, but it, it, I've noticed it, I've seen it way more in Shakespeare productions than I have in, uh, any contemporary theater that I've seen. And, and that I might be wrong. That might be something that people disagree with, but I, I've definitely seen that be a pattern. Yeah. I can definitely see that because some people will get caught up on the verse and, and they'll, you know, get that because it's written in verse, they might feel like they have to be working with with the meter and they concentrate too much on that. And really, to me, you just say the words, the 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 the, the verse takes care of itself. And if you forget about meter and you forget about all, all that stuff and just say the words. It'll it, like you can be more relaxed about it and you can actually be funny and you can actually. You can sort of see, like, I've, I've had the chance to see <clears throat> there was a production of Taming of the Shrew that was uh, a simulcast at one of the theaters here. So it came from uh, Shakespeare's Globe. And there were a few actors in that that were shining because when they spoke, it didn't feel like verse. Mm-hmm. It felt supernatural, like instead of supernatural, like they felt really natural the way that they were speaking it. And it just sort of like... It was incredible to to hear. Well, and I I personally don't have any like classical theater training. Um, that was something I I never got at any uh, any you know program or class that I took. And so when I started doing like last year when I did Shakespeare in the Park, that was my very first time even working with the text. And something that I noticed because I I ended up doing. Uh, I did Midsummer Night's Dream with in uh, Shakespeare in the Park, and then I did uh, the Tempest with the Shakespeare Company, and Much Ado About Nothing with DIY Theater in Calgary. And I something that I noticed personally was I never worried about the verse, and I never worried about like how to uh, you know measure it. It wasn't something that I even thought of, and a lot of people that were like really good friends of mine were who hate Shakespeare, like despise mm. it with a passion. were like, yeah, you know, it was weird. When I was watching you do Shakespeare, I actually understood what you were saying. And then at the same time I had theater professionals that said, yeah, that scanned well, like that was, that worked. So I, I think that yeah. something that a lot of actors need to consider is to not focus on that because that, like you said, that will come. That is something that, will come because the words are written the way that they are. And so if you, if you just focus on, on, you know, becoming the character and making that those words your own, it will flow and it will sound beautiful. But if you, if you really work on it, it's going to feel like you're grinding gears and just one at a time moving on to the next one. And it's the worst when you notice that in a performance and when you Mm -hmm. notice someone doing it and you go, Oh uh, yeah, nope. You are you are speaking in perfect verse, but there is no emotion behind those words. I really think that that one of the the lessons that you can take from Shakespeare is to trust the text, and mm. you can take that from Shakespeare to to whatever modern piece you do, because if you just trust the text, it'll take care of you. So if you what you know, if you're like if you're doing some book work and you're like looking at the meter and you're talking about it. That's great. But once you're done, you forget it because the words will take care of you. Just trust the words that are there and it'll carry you through. And then you could take that to whatever the next piece that you're doing, because the trust in the text will just take you to where you need to go. Yeah. And I think that if you like, like you said, it's all about having trust in the text. And I think that's something that 
um, when you have the opportunity to like, I think that's why theater actors end up being better actors in general. Like people that have that theater training is because they, they work so much with the text, you know? And so there is that, like you, you end up developing a trust for the text over time. Like the, the best actors that I know, they might not necessarily do all the script work, but they, they know the text uh, and they, they have faith that it's just going to end up finding itself, you know? Um, and I think that's something that, that theater actors definitely do well is they, they have that, that comfort within the words that it, it's not so jarring. Um, because I, I've definitely noticed, like I had a huge, uh, like I, I had done so much film before I went to theater school and I noticed the first thing that I noticed about going to theater school was breaking all the bad habits that I had had when looking at scripts. Like that was the first thing that ended up, you know, getting completely scrapped and, and taken away. And I think that that's something that needs to be maybe focused on a little more in, in acting programs in general is just to have faith that you as the actor uh, should have the, the confidence in the playwright or the, the uh, screenwriter uh, that their words will work, you know, and you don't have to like, you don't have to focus on those words. It, this might've sounded like very convoluted, but it, it, I, I, I think that the way to make it work is to just let it flow. Yeah, I agree with that. And the one thing that I mean, getting back to the dip, what you were saying about like theater actors versus versus maybe film actors and working with the text is um, is is breaking down a, a, a script. And that's something that 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 we learned at theater school and actors tend to tend to be pretty good at. I've often I've worked at a, in a, a couple of shows where I worked with an unfamiliar director who I think maybe came from more of a film background and did not do much work with the actors in talking about the script. Day one, we're on our feet instead of like talking about the script. And what ended up happening is that later in the rehearsal process, we're asking all the questions that we should have been asking um, at the first rehearsal because we haven't laid a foundation at all. So getting through and, 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 and suddenly it's like two weeks before the show. And we're like, so why this? And the actors are struggling to put those, those things together. Yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely have been in that position before uh, where, you know, you, you get to almost opening and you're like, Oh, I have, I have no idea why these are the words that I am like, why is this the choice that I'm making in this? And I, I think you're right that it, it's often, directors that have maybe more of a, a film directing idea um, because they want to see it visualized. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of good directors take that time to not only visualize it, but to intellectualize the text. Right. And to like do that in a way that is so simple that it starts to build into something brilliant. Right. Um one of my like absolute favorite uh, processes that I've had as an actor uh, when I was in Toronto uh, a couple of years ago, I did a show that was with, uh, it was just with this independent theater company. Um, and it was, we were doing gruesome playground injuries by Rajiv Joseph. And the, it was, it was honestly, it was a six month rehearsal process. We were only meeting, you know, once a week for the first, two months and then it was twice a week and then it became, you know, a full rehearsal uh, process, like the last three weeks leading up to it. And for the first, you know, three months, it was entirely table work and it was trying to, you know, get through that script and just, just break it down. And especially a script like that, where every scene is different stages in people's lives, but it helped when we got on our feet then to just, be so much more natural in it because the the text was just second language it was muscle memory at that point right and all of the all of the thoughts that build to that that line that you're about to say are just so ingrained that it makes sense uh, what company was the was gruesome playground injuries with uh that was theater at east minister 
Um, okay. Okay. So they, the, the year that I did it, uh, so last year, um, they ended up actually being a part of the Toronto fringe, but the year before was the year that I did it. And it was still just a independent, uh, like theater company run in the East minister church. Um, but it was, it was pretty cool because the whole thing was a fundraiser for, uh, I forget what the charity was, but it was, um, it was basically for helping to house homeless people um, as like a drop-in at the church. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool to, to get to do that. And, and especially with a script like that, uh, cause the other actor that I was in that play with, like, uh, do you know the play very well or? I, I don't know it well. Okay. The, the, the whole story takes place with these two kids, uh, and it, it goes in and out of their lives from the time that they're eight years old until they're 38. And it is told non-chronologically and each of the scenes start with one of them being injured in some way. Right. So, uh, the other actor that I was performing with, uh, her name is Justine Christensen and she was a George Brown grad. She's, uh, had two shows in the fringe in Toronto and, and like, she's an amazing playwright, but it was cool to, uh, work with another emerging actor in that setting and to have that much time to work on it because we had both been talking about how it was, it, it felt weird, uh, you know, coming out of any sort of training and just being in the world and, you know, most professional settings, you're not going to have that, that same experience, right? Like you're not going to have that much time to work on the, on the text. And so we were both really grateful for that because of how, I guess, not just demanding the show was, but for how, uh, like it, it's, it's a weird intimate thing to do, you know, a 90 minute show with only one other person. And mm. so to be able to have that much time to really work it out and make sure that, you know, we are able to have those moments that nothing is happening, but it works because we are so invested in it. Right. And I think if we didn't have that much time, like we probably would have done a good job, but I don't think it would have been to the same level that it was having that, that, you know, prep work in place. No, it's a, a, a rehearsal process and, and a, and a, and a longer one is certainly a gift. Um, I once heard somebody describe the typical two week rehearsal uh, process and like, as in, we're going to get it blocked and we're going to get the lines learned and you'll figure everything else. You'll figure out character after we open. Mm. And it was like, cause you know, this, I heard that in theater school and I was like, Oh, so all this time that we're spending now is not something we're going to get out there. Um, the, the ability to really delve in and understand more about the characters. If, if you only have two weeks, you're just trying to throw it all together. But if you have time, there's some amazing things that you could do and you'll get more depth. Yeah. And I think that that's another thing that separates theater with film is just that time. Right. Cause if you're, and, and I mean, most actors do both uh, like, you know, if, if you're trained in theater, you end up doing both. I don't think necessarily film actors do a lot of crossover into theater, but just having that, uh, having that experience to dive into the text, I think it does make, theater actors a little bit more prepared when they're going in for even just an audition because you you might not have the full amount of time that you had before to really work on the script and and get everything but you know the shortcuts that you need to take in order to get there and mm -hmm. in order to get it done well and i think that that's something that's just so crucial that i'm i'm so thankful that i had that knowledge coming out of theater school absolutely um, now you went, so you came at, at, at theater and acting in sort of like a circuitous route. So you did, like you were saying, you did some, some amateur stuff when you were, uh, earlier on, you did some community work. And then in, in Saskatchewan, you did some, and then you did stand up. And at some point you decided that you were going to go to theater school and you were going to make acting and stand up and, and stunt work your life. Now, mm -hmm. at what point did you realize that that was the thing that you were going to do with your life? I think that before I actually did it, there was there was a couple of key moments in high school that made me really think about it. Um, 
because at, at one point when I was in high school, like, like I had mentioned before, like I was rodeoing and I wasn't very good. I, I had like a few, like I was, you know, able to win a couple, but I, I kind of saw that that wasn't going to be a longevity career for me. And I always had that seed in the back of my head that I wanted to get into film and I wanted to, you know, do stand up. Like I, I knew those were things that I wanted to do, but I, at the time was so afraid of taking that that jump and, and approaching that. And especially in a small town, it's really hard to, uh, it's hard to sound cool when you're like, yeah, I want to, I, I don't want to live on a ranch for the rest of my life. I want to go to the big city and be an actor like that. That's not something anybody really says in small town Saskatchewan. So uh, at one point I had been planning on going to school to become a vet. And my whole plan with that was like, okay, I'll, I'll do rodeo. I'll get a rodeo scholarship. I'll do that. And then I can be a vet and I can do that wherever. And it was about halfway through grade 11. I like, I kept getting hurt rodeoing. I got my head stepped on by a bull and that was, that was a whole mess. And so I just decided, I was like, I need to, I need to do something at least to like make a step towards this. So I, every day would be emailing Actra because I, I didn't know much about the film community or like, or acting in general or anything, but I knew that Actra was, you know, the, the acting union. And so I, at the time, Saskatchewan had an Actra uh, office because they still had the film tax credit. There was still a lot of production going on there. And so I was emailing them pretty constantly and I would spend the time that I was supposed to be working on uh, like distance learning uh, courses, which because in Saskatchewan, the school sizes are so small that all of your elective classes end up going online. So the uh, I, I would I was supposed to be working on online classes and I would end up just going down the rabbit hole, finding anybody that I could email to talk to uh, that might be able to even just give me advice in the industry. And so I got a hold of it. Uh, this guy at Actra, and he uh, got me in contact with this uh, producer named Rhonda Baker. And she was producing this film that starred Christian Slater, and it was directed by Roger Christian. Uh, it was this uh, like sci-fi thriller, and it was actually the last film that was filmed in Saskatchewan that got the film tax credit. So she offered to let me come on to set and just shadow the stunt coordinator for their production and so that was definitely the moment for me when I went oh this is what I want to do for the rest of my life because I got to see one of the like I would say one of the best actors in you know in history in terms of like uh like a b-list movie guy I got to watch him do scenes and stand like 20 feet away while you know a scene is going on and then uh hear him getting direction and just watched how a film set operated and even just that one thing uh made me at 16 go yeah this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life and then that made grade 12 so much more difficult because I I didn't have that that drive for school anymore and because I had in grade 10 and 11 focused so hard on school uh for you know a year and a half like halfway through grade 11 was when I I started shifting that focus um, I already basically had all my credits. So all I needed were three grade 12 classes in grade 12. And so the majority of, of the year was just me hanging out at school. Cause I didn't, I didn't have any classes to go to. And it, it just ignited so much more of a fire in me because then I was sitting there and, and I was like, wow, I'm literally sitting here, not like doing anything. And this is the thing that I want to do. And I had a taste of it. And now I have to keep being in school, you know? So that was, that was probably like the key moment for when mm -hmm. I, I knew that was what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. You mentioned um, when you were in school, not, you know, not being comfortable saying, I want to move to the big city and be an actor. Um, it, what, did people, did anybody know that that's what you wanted to do? Were you afraid of being made fun of? Did you get a sense that people would make fun of it? Or was it just the fact that like everybody around you was like going to work on a ranch, going to, going to do this, going to do that. And nobody else was saying anything like that. 
See, I don't know if it was, there was definitely a little bit of the fear of like being made fun of because, you know, in, in the, you know, the preconceived notion of an actor is not the most masculine thing. Uh, And if you're in a small town in Saskatchewan, there's such a hyper masculinity. uh, Everybody's got to be a hardworking, you know, uh, person. You have to, you know, pay your taxes on time. Like that's, that's the mentality of, uh, you know, that area and so there was a little bit of fear of of being made fun of but it wasn't necessarily like I was terrified of it because there was still stuff that I was doing when I was in high school that was definitely alluding to the the fact that I wanted to you know be an actor and and do comedy because uh when I was I I guess I would have been like 15 years old I started I bought a video camera and some editing software some really cheap editing software and I started just filming whatever with my friends and i was the i was the kid that would walk around with a video camera in his pocket and just anything that i thought could be funny i would film it and so it it would be anything from like you know stunts or sketches or you know like pranks whatever whatever i could film and cut together to make funny i would just do it so i think in my close circle of friends a lot of them knew that was what I was going to end up doing. Um, and even like a lot of my high school teachers were like, yeah, no, like the way that your like your marks in English and art were a lot higher than a lot of the other subjects. Um, so it, it made sense to them. Like they, like one of my, my grade nine English teacher, I messaged her cause the first, uh, thing that she taught in our English class was Midsummer Night's Dream. And so when my first professional theater gig was Midsummer Night's mm. Dream, I, I felt like I I had to message her. And so I was like, yeah, like I I know I was probably a, a you know bit of a jerk when I was in, in school and I wasn't paying attention very much, but uh, I was definitely listening during that class and and you know now I'm about to do my first professional theater gig and it's it's the play that you taught. And she was like, yeah, this is something that I definitely could have seen in you at an early age. And it was a lot of me, I think, pushing that away. Like I was, I was so afraid to just take that step towards that. Um, Partially, like I said, partially because it it would have been, you know, painting a target on my back and partially just, Mm -hmm. I think I wasn't ready for it yet. Like I wasn't ready to acknowledge that was what I wanted to do, Mm. but it was, it was definitely, I'm glad that I took the route that I did though, because I think that it made me a lot more resilient as an actor. Um, especially like growing up, you know, on a farm, you, you start working early and you, you learn the value of a dollar very young. And so you have this work ethic that's just built into you that I think a lot of people don't necessarily get. And it's, it's not to say that it's a bad thing that other people don't have it, but it's definitely a good thing that I do have it. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it, it makes me not afraid of, of failing as much. And, and especially like the rodeo background too. Like I, I think what gave me a lot of fearlessness was when I was 12, I started hitchhiking, you know, to rodeos. Like I would, I would be like, okay, I got to get to, you know, this place in Manitoba and I'm in the far west side of Saskatchewan. Got to get there somehow. I don't have a car. Uh, and I would, I would just kind of like find my way to to get things done. And and you know, having a sport like that that was so, like, honestly, just brutal. Like in 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 so many ways, where it's so physically demanding. That also just gave me a a, a sense of fearlessness when it came to approaching the arts because I'm like, you know, a lot of people I think do have stage fright they have to get over and I definitely had that too but I don't think that I had it as bad because I I was always looking at it the perspective of like okay what's the worst that happens if it if it doesn't go good like if it doesn't go good people might think that was bad and that's the worst that's going to happen if it doesn't go good but it's not going to physically hurt me like I did something that would be very you know the the risk was way higher than the reward so mm. when when the risk is lower than what the reward is that that just makes it so much easier to wrap my head around right right yeah um just to transition a little bit um you're in calgary i am um what is what has been the the effect on 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 you and on everything around you uh as far as the 
the the COVID nineteen, the quarantine, the the lockdown. How has that been for you, or has it has there been much of an effect? It's been well, it's been interesting because I last year I recorded and released a, a comedy album, and so this year was really a year of just like building new material up and getting getting new uh new gigs because like now I've got enough material to start you know opening for people and emceeing so I'd had a lot of stuff booked uh up in April and May that just flat out got canceled as far as comedy goes and then I had quite a few uh film opportunities that just ended up not happening because you know everything shut down um the day that the lockdown actually happened I was on set for a Telus Story Hive uh, web series pilot, and it was the first day of three for shooting, mm-hmm. and this script was amazing. Like it was, it was a project that I I was genuinely excited for, and we got done the end of the day, and Telus had emailed uh, the production team, and they were like, "Every production has to cease immediately. Like we we cannot, in good conscience, let people." um you know be on sets and be exposing themselves uh Mm. so it was like it was so such a quick turn where like a week before i had been thinking like wow that's that's crazy that now you know british columbia has cases and ontario has cases and it was like uh a couple of days before that uh my girlfriend woke up one morning and was like yeah i think I think this is going to be a serious problem. And and my stepdad's a pharmacist and he was also saying for probably two months before the actual lockdown, he was like, no, this is going to end up like affecting everyone. Like this is going to shut down the world. I, I, I can see it now. So there was a lot of signs that it was going to happen, but it wasn't until that moment that it really, really hit me where I was like, hmm. wow, there is, there is like, this is, this is actually changing the world right now and this is terrifying um but it was it was scary because i i then gotten in the car to go home and i was texting my agent and i was like hey what's happening with this gig and she's like well this just got postponed this got pushed back so it was it was a lot all within probably 20 minutes where i realized oh the world is actually shutting down now like this is this is now like this is inevitable so it was it was a it was a lot of panic. I uh, went to the grocery store and went and got as much canned food and and you know pasta and and flour and yeast as I could because I was I was one of those people that that really worried about it and thought I was going to be actually stuck inside my house, not able to leave. So I thought if I get everything that I could possibly need for about you know a month and a half, I should be fine. Uh, so for a second, I thought you were going to be like, I went to the store and I bought as much toilet paper as I possibly can, because that's what <laughs> Toronto did. Yeah, no, I wasn't too worried about that, because uh, since my parents <laughs> own a pharmacy, they were able to send me toilet paper. So <laughs> I, I had this little bit of an advantage where I wasn't too worried about that. But I, I did also see as I was going through the store that day, every bit of toilet paper and paper towels just gone. And I'm like, yeah. That's the thing that you decide you like, if you're stuck at home, do you really need toilet paper? That's the thing. And like, if nobody's coming to your house, like you can, you can take a shower after you can do other things to clean yourself. That's not (laughs) the most important essential thing that you need. Like you need food, you need water, you need, you know, uh, yeah soap like those are things that you need so when i saw everybody freaking out over toilet paper it was just such a like there's been so many signs now that i'm becoming an adult that point to how dumb humans are just in general and that was like that was almost the nail in the coffin for me where i went oh yeah nope we're we are not a species that is meant for longevity like we are not going to we're not going to last very long. I can see that happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I used to watch things like zombie movies. And as everybody was being stupid around the hero or whatever, I'd be like, nobody would do that. And now I'm like, no, everybody would do that. Everybody would do that. Everybody would, would stock up on toilet paper and not, uh, not food. It, it, yeah. 
people would do the stupid thing that we say nobody would do that in a horror movie. No, and 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 it's crazy to me that that is like how accurate so many horror movies were. You know, where <laughs> you just go really like when you're watching it before the quarantine happened, it's like oh, there's no way. Like you said, with zombie movies especially, I'm like I'm glad this wasn't zombies because like I <laughs> I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe no. Like, if it was zombies, I feel like I still probably would have been fine because I would have gotten the essentials and everybody would have gotten toilet paper. So, yes, but then there would be people in the government saying, listen, I know that the undead are rising, but we have to protect the economy. Oh, 100%. And then there'd be people protesting and, well, there are zombies walking around on the street. You can't make me not get bitten by zombies. Yeah. No, the zombies aren't real. Nope, it's just it's just a second <laughs> coming. Nope, Christ will rise soon. That's what this is. I could see the signs now. Like yes. I could see it yeah. happening. What I thought was amazing was about a month afterwards, like we the thing that's funny about Calgary is Calgary's a really modern city and there's like for the most part I would say Calgary is a very progressive city. But then a month after the quarantine happened, there was probably 20 people that were on, like, I live just off of 17th Avenue, which is like the big walking district in Calgary. And there's people protesting in one of the parks about, you know, 5G causing coronavirus. And I'm like, oh, no, those idiots are actually everywhere. Like those people are, are, there's no avoiding them. They're going to be wherever there are people congregating. There will be a few that just fell a little short, you know, <laughs> I had this thing where, you know, there's these people who are saying, listen, this is all a plot. Cause the vaccine, they're going to put something in it to track us. And I'm like, yeah, they don't need to do that. You're willingly telling them everything with your phone. Yeah. You know? It's like all these people are like, Oh, I don't want a tracker to tell the government everything about me. And you're like, yeah, but you have Facebook and you have Instagram and you have Twitter and you have, you have an Apple phone and you have your Android phone and they're all reporting information on you, but you're afraid of a, of a, of a, of a tracker being injected in you. Well, and do you ever think about like the amount of things that you sign up for that ask for, you know, personal information, but of it's course. such a wall of text for you to click to agree. So you just agree without actually reading it. Cause I, Oh, 100%. I, I get emails from things that I didn't even know I was signed up for. And I forget signing up for them. Like I have, I have, like a total burner email account which is my like it's what i've you know registered for facebook and everything with i'm like that's my sure, yeah. not important email and it's got like seventy thousand emails in the inbox because i never open it up for any reason and i just look at that and i'm like how many of those things just have my personal information and you know like realistically it's probably not going to affect me as a person in the long run but Still, that's a lot of companies that that have my have all my personal details, and I don't. Sure. I, I I don't know what they're going to use it for. It probably isn't going to be good. But how many of those companies are actually going to last that much longer? Even so, what is well, it? Not? You're also looking at like you know you're you have a conversation with somebody, and you happen to mention some obscure thing. You open up Facebook, and it's it shows you an ad for that obscure thing that you talked about, and it's always like okay. Yeah. No, that happened recently in a way that freaked me out. Uh, like more than any other time, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that she had to get an abortion at one point. And I started getting ads for Planned Parenthood in my neighborhood the next hour. Like, Are you was, kidding me? It was an hour later on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything was just Planned Parenthood. And I'm like, wow, that's the creepiest thing ever. Wow. Like... <laughs> Um, but just to, to to get a little bit back to a little a, a little bit of seriousness, uh, how have you been dealing? Because with all the work dried up, um, how have you been keeping yourself sane? How have you been keeping yourself busy? What's what? How have you been like surviving day to day? Well, uh, the day that everything shut down, my girlfriend and I started the Quarantine International Film Festival, uh, and it ended up becoming like the most successful uh, like isolation film fest that was going on um and because we started it right when things shut down so it was like we our timing was just right uh you know we got the the handles on all the social media for it and so that ended up becoming a full-time job like we were uh from that day until like now we've been every day responding to you know 
tens of messages, if not hundreds mm. on, you know, social media and emails and everything. And we actually ended up doing two iterations of it because we had the first round, we got like over 600 entries um, from around the world. And they were all films that had to be made in self-isolation. Uh, you had to incorporate our theme uh, somehow, which for the first round, it was bear or bear. Uh, and we got some really wild ones from that. Um, and then the second round, it was a quote from Hamlet, which was listen to many, speak to a few. And we ended up, uh, after a second round, like we've got thousands of submissions. Um, and we were just running it, the two of us, and we mm. you know, set up a website and everything. Um, so that was really good. But the funny thing about it was we had started it because we thought, oh, this would be fun. And like, maybe like, you know, a couple of our friends will submit and we'll be able to make a movie too. And then, you know, we'll just have a playlist of like all of our friends films that, you know, were made in, in isolation. And we ended up not even having time to, to make a film ourselves. So we, kind of just built this really cool community and and it hmm. grew and it was really inspiring in a lot of ways too and and especially like we're both filmmakers and so we got to see things that were made you know from people that were emmy award winners who made Ooh. stuff with their kids and like at the same time then there's like emerging filmmakers who took stuff like they took their smartphone and they filmed it completely on their own and like did all the cinematography and the editing and the acting and everything. And so there was such a wide range of creativity that was, you know, that we were exposed to and that we, we helped foster. And it was so good because honestly, it, it, it didn't feel like things were as bad as they were to us. Um, because yeah, we weren't able to leave our apartments, but we were, still in uh in the arts and we were still doing something that we were both very passionate about and it was such a good distraction that it just it just completely took away uh a lot of the fear that we had had just a couple of days before um and what was really crazy about it is like because we were on the ball with it and we were like the first people that did that we ended up getting so much press around the world for it. And like we were on CTV news here. Uh, we were on CBC radio like four mm. times. Uh, we were uh, in the New York observer, uh, the globe and mail, uh, the Calgary Herald. There was newspapers in Germany. There was uh, a bunch of South American TV shows that had us, you know, zoom in and interview. And so we ended up getting so much, like exposure from it that we weren't even expecting. Like we were, we were just wanting to do something that we thought would help other people take their minds off of the whole situation. And it ended up being something that, you know, was so much, I, I like beneficial for, for us in the long run too. Like, and, and, you know, that's something that we were, we were so blown away by. And, and the coolest part about it is how much of a community it is that's around the festival. Like, the um a lot of the filmmakers that we've you know been in touch with were now like oh well we might you know we might work with these people in the future and and that's been really cool because it's all just because we had this idea like the night everything shut down when we were both huh. terrified nice sounds like it's been really rewarding yeah it's been super rewarding and it's been like i said like it's been cool seeing people just adapt to their situations and and work with what they had and that was that was a big thing that like we wanted to make clear with the festival is we were like if people only have their smartphone we're not going to judge based off of the quality of your your film like we're going to judge based off of how creative you got with what you had and people got really creative but there was also just some outstanding quality behind most of the stuff that people were submitting like we we saw films that we were like how was this filmed on a smartphone without a budget like hmm. it just it it was amazing and it and it was so hmm. like i said for us it was inspiring because it's like now we're now we've seen how other people have done that and it's like okay i want to do something like that now like i yeah. really want to get out and film something with my smartphone and and make it as as interesting as that person did and hmm. you know 
how can I use my own strengths and build off of what somebody else has done and do it in a way that, you know, furthers that even, even more, you know? So it's, it's been really cool, really rewarding. And, and honestly, the, the best thing to happen during quarantine for us. Spencer, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.